Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features expert answers to clinician questions on current and emerging immunotherapy options for patients with advanced small cell lung cancer. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Immunotherapy in Small Cell Lung Cancer, Challenges and Opportunities of Rapidly Evolving Treatments. During this podcast, Dr. Anna F. Farago from Harvard Medical School in Boston and Dr. Taofik K. Awanikoko from Emory University in Atlanta will answer questions asked by the audience during a live CCO webinar covering topics including choosing between atezolizumab and dervalumab in the frontline setting, using lurbinectidin, a novel anti-cancer drug that was recently approved for the treatment of relapsed small cell lung cancer after platinum-based chemotherapy, identifying patients who may benefit from salvage therapy with an immune checkpoint inhibitor in the third-line setting, and managing patients with extensive-stage small cell lung cancer and brain metastases. For more information on Dr. Farago and Dr. Awanakoko, along with a link to the complete program that includes downloadable slide sets and an on-demand webcast, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. So uh, with that, I will open it up and uh, Dr. Farago will join me and we'll be happy to take some questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Wanikook. We have gotten some questions from the audience, uh, and I'll, I'll pose one of these to you. Um, one of the participants asked whether we see a difference between atezolizumab and dervalumab in small cell lung cancer. And I will maybe extend that question a little bit to say, do you think that there are key differences in the two um, positive studies? And then, um, well, I'll have some follow-on questions from there, but I'll start with that. Yeah, so I think given where we find ourselves now, that is the question that keeps coming up, which is uh, we have two positive trials using anti-PDL1 agent. Is there something unique to those two agents? And I would say based on what we know now, probably not. Uh, I think it's all these vagaries of clinical trial. Uh, in terms of whether one is better than the other of the two approved drugs, so atezolizumab or devalumab, we cannot do cross-trial comparison to say maybe the result for one trial look more positive than the other. These were well-designed trials. They had very standard control arm, and they both came out positive that adding atezolizumab to chemotherapy is better than chemotherapy, and that adding dovalumab to chemotherapy is better than doing chemotherapy alone. The earliest of these data in the frontline setting is the IMPAR-133 trial, uh, which looked at the combination of atezolizumab and chemotherapy. Uh, in this uh, case, carboplatin and etoposide was used versus placebo plus chemotherapy carboplatin etoposide. And this was tested in newly diagnosed patients with extensive stage disease, good performance status, and treated asymptomatic brain uh, metastasis. Switching gears, the second uh, trial that was reported a little over a year ago now was the Caspian study, 
which was actually a three-arm study looking at two experimental arms. Uh, one is Dovalumab plus Platinum and Etofusite. The second experimental arm was Dovalumab, Tremelimumab, and chemotherapy, Etofusite, and Platinum agent. And these were compared to patients treated with chemotherapy alone. My choice of which agents to use, I do use both of them. Uh, my choice of which agent to use boils down to the patient in front of me. Uh, so for the atezolizumab, based on the way the study was designed, we can only use that or should only use that with carboplatin-based regimen. Uh, the Caspian trial used both cisplatin and carbo. So if we have clinical reasons why we want to use cisplatin, for instance, then the Valumab becomes the, the more appropriate of the two agents to use. Uh, if you have a patient with brain metastasis, for instance, where you do not want to wait and treat the brain metastasis and it's asymptomatic, the Caspian trial allowed those patients on study. The Empower 133 did not. So those are some of the clinical features that I use. But beyond that, uh, I, it's, it is very dangerous at this point to say either one of those two drugs uh, is better than the other. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. Um, you know, one question that sometimes comes up is you presented four studies um, in the first line setting, and it's notable that the two studies with PDL1 inhibitors were positive. The two studies with PD1 inhibitors are not approved regimens. Keynote 604 just missed its target, and the uh, ECOG Akron study was uh, a phase two study, not really a, a registration study, but with nivolumab. Um, not yet an approved regimen in the first-line setting. So the question is really, do you think that there's a biologic difference between PDL1 inhibition versus PD1 inhibition uh, in combination with chemotherapy, or is this really just a factor of having only small numbers of trials with each category of drug? Yeah, so I think where we don't have complete knowledge of you know, the biology and the behavior of these drugs and the targets, I think we have sufficient knowledge to say that these drugs whether they target PDL1 or PD1, uh, if they're going to be effective, they're going to be effective. So I don't think the fact that the two anti-PD1 clinical trials did not meet the target, the nivolumab met the target. It's just that it was a small study that would not be sufficient to change practice. And it actually met both the PFS and the OS endpoint for which it was significantly underpowered. So I would say at this point in time, the data would support that Targeting PD-1 or PDL one is a reasonable approach. It's just that we only have definitive trials with those agents, uh, with those trials where the anti-PDL1 agents were used. Um, and then uh, one last question for this part of the, the discussion. In your clinical practice, how do you consider incorporation of PCI uh, and or consolidated thoracic radiation into um, patient care? Yeah, I think for the PCI, actually, that's a very easy question to answer because before we even started considering chemoimmunotherapy, uh, based on the Japanese data, I've moved away from the use of PCI in patients with extensive stage disease if I can monitor the brain. So if I can get serial MRI uh, in a patient, I don't recommend PCI for them if they have extensive stage disease. Uh, now that we have the data with uh, Caspian trial that you actually can even have patients with brain metastasis that is asymptomatic and just go ahead and do systemic therapy, I think the use of PCI will go even lower. 
uh, with regards to chest radiation, uh, none of these studies allow patients to be given thoracic radiation following induction chemoimmunotherapy. So currently, I do not offer that to patients uh, because of the likelihood of increased toxicity. But there are ongoing trials now uh, that are trying to answer that question whether or not adding thoracic radiation to the maintenance uh, immune checkpoint blockade will result in better outcomes. So we have to wait for the result of those trials. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. We're going to move on to focusing on immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy in the management of pretreated extensive stage small cell lung cancer. And I'll turn it over to Dr. Awoni Koko to um, pose the, the questions from the audience. Uh, we actually do have some interesting questions from the uh, audience. Uh, one is regarding lobinectidine. Mm -hmm. Does lobinectidine work for brain metastasis? I think that's a great question. Patients with brain metastases were excluded from the uh, single arm phase two study. So, you know, I think we don't have good data uh, to, to really answer that question well yet. It's a very large molecule. Um, you know, I don't know if it gets great CNS penetration, but I think we're going to have to um, get some more real world data to get a better sense of the CNS activity of lerbinectidin. And um, I think one other question that has clinical implication for all of us, the good um, responses seen in some select patients with nevo, nivolumab, and prembolizumab in the third line setting leading to FDA approval. These were all patients who did not get immunotherapy as part of their frontline regimen. So the question is, what subset of patients are you going to offer salvage therapy with immune checkpoint blockade to at this point? Yeah, I think that's a really tough question. You know, I have to say uh, for the majority of my patients who were treated with upfront chemotherapy plus checkpoint inhibitor therapy, either Atezo or Derva, um, who were then on that maintenance regimen and then developed progression on that maintenance regimen, I'm really hard-pressed to go back to a different checkpoint inhibitor therapy in the future. I certainly wouldn't go right away. So I wouldn't go to, for example, second-line pembrolizumab after progression on atezolizumab. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, even after multiple intervening lines of chemotherapy, you know, I think it's something that can be considered, um, and we don't really know um, what to expect um, for, for uh, treating patients with checkpoint inhibitor therapy um, in that context. But that's a tumor that's already shown us that it, it has found a way around checkpoint inhibitor therapy previously. So I would say, you know, if patients have exhausted other options, it's a discussion worth having with patients. But I'd be very honest to say I wouldn't expect a high likelihood of uh, clinical benefit in that setting. Yeah, I agree with you. That's my own practice pattern as well. For those who get chemoimmunotherapy in the front line, if they progress, I try to use a cytotoxic agent in between. and if for whatever reason, uh, I want to go back to immunotherapy. It's not going to be immediately after they just progressed in the front line. Uh, but what we need actually in that space would be very well-conducted clinical trials. And there are some of them now looking at immunotherapy plus a different chemotherapy uh, when patient progressed on the maintenance uh, immunotherapy. So hopefully those studies will clarify things for us. Thank you, Dr. Awani Koko. And the last question that was asked was, 
Um, how do we decide whether to use lurbanectidin in the second line setting? And I think um, the data that we see for lurbanectidin um, based on that phase two study looks very encouraging. Uh, numerically, the numbers we're seeing there for response rate and PFS survival are somewhat higher than what we've seen in historical studies, but we have to be careful not to overinterpret cross-study comparisons. Um, we really don't have randomized data yet supporting larbonectidin in that context. Hopefully we'll see some of that um, coming in the future. So for now, I would say we have several options in the second line setting. Topotecan and larbonectidin are the two approved regimens, though we have others uh, with uh, supporting phase two data that are NCCN recommended. And, um, and I think then, therefore, it turns really into a question of which is the regimen that um, seems most reasonable and uh, safe and manageable for an individual patient. And I certainly approach that on a patient-by-patient -patient, um, basis. Dr. Wonikoko, how, how would you approach that now that lurbanectin is, is an option in the second-line setting? Yeah, so I agree with you. We are all learning as we use the agent more and more. Uh, but where I what I look for is whether a patient benefited from the platinum doublet chemotherapy to start with or not. Those with resistant disease appear not to benefit as well from lobinectidin. Now that does not mean they will benefit from anything else. We know that in general, uh, platinum resistant patient response rate is about half of what you see with platinum sensitive with any other cytotoxic agent that you use. Um, but if somebody really has highly refractory patients and uh, they're very, very symptomatic, that could be a reason to maybe, you know, discuss goal of care with the patient first. And if they want to give it a try, then consider doing it. Uh, the other area would be for patients with uncontrolled brain metastasis. Uh, since these are, this is a very big molecule, we actually do not have any data to suggest that it will cross the blood-brain barrier and be effective. So in situations like that, I might go for something that has better chances of getting into the brain, like irinotecan, for instance, uh, if I'm going to treat the patient in the salvage setting. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, you know, we've actually gotten several questions from the audience about management of patients with brain metastases. Um, you know, we saw that the Caspian study allowed small asymptomatic brain metastases, uh, whereas in Power 133 didn't, although I think in practice probably We've been comfortable using the Empower 133 regimen uh, for patients with small asymptomatic brain metastases, at least certainly prior to the approval of the Caspian regimen. Um, how, how do you think about uh, brain metastases now in the first line setting and beyond? You know, how would you approach somebody with symptomatic brain metastases at baseline um, as opposed to asymptomatic? How would you approach somebody with brain metastases that may have been asymptomatic at first, but then um, have completed now four cycles of chemo IO, are on maintenance therapy, and you still see some residual metastases on imaging? How would you think about these patients? Yeah, so I would look at brain metastases in three different buckets. One is you have a patient with brain metastases at the time of original diagnosis that is symptomatic. That is not the type of patient you want to hold off from radiation. So radiation is the most effective weapon we have when it comes to brain metastasis. So those patients should be offered uh, brain-directed therapy with radiation, whether whole brain or SRS, depending on uh, the choice that is made by the radiation oncologist based on the location and other factors. Then you have the second group of patients with brain metastasis or diagnosis, but asymptomatic and relatively small. That is the type of patient where we're saying you can 
move on and get the patient started on systemic therapy. We know that chemotherapy by itself would also have about 30% response rate in the brain. So starting that patient with asymptomatic brain metastasis on systemic therapy helps avoid any delay in initiating treatment because as we've seen, there are some patients after radiation treatment, their performance hazards will just drop and you may not be able to get them onto systemic therapy. And then we have the third group of patients who are patients where you've already treated them. They did not have any metastasis to start with, but maybe during the maintenance phase of uh, atezolizumab or dovalumab, now develop brain metastasis. Mm -hmm. So for those patients, there is no reason to wait uh, because they've already been on treatment for quite a while. If the treatment was going to help uh, control the brain, it should have worked. So in those patients, I don't wait. Uh, I will just go ahead and treat the brain. Now, there's always the question of, is it safe to do it with IO? Uh, I think we have now some data combining IO with brain SRS uh, that should give us some comfort that there should be, uh, uh, that this approach will be safe in patients. And you know, these are drugs that hang on for weeks to months. So we, we're not going to have the luxury of waiting for the drug to wash out of the system before doing the radiation. Absolutely. And I think one of the important messages kind of implicit in all of what you've said is that certainly for patients who have uh, not had whole brain radiation, ongoing very active surveillance of the CNS is really critical. So these, we shouldn't just get a baseline brain MRI and then ignore it afterwards. We have to really stay vigilant and can continue doing brain imaging um, over the course of patient's treatment. Absolutely. Excellent. We can probably address one more question. And, uh, you know, I think this is one that's, um, you know, I, an important one for us to try to answer. Someone asked, in terms of real-world patients in the normal practice scenario, it appears that combined therapy is not so cost-effective as to fight for it, as I really should do in non-small cell lung cancers. How, how would you answer somebody who... who uh, yeah. So that's, that is the big elephant in the room when it comes to small cell, uh, because unfortunately for our patients, we all tend to look at small cell with the same prism as we look at non-small cell. Uh, but forgetting where we were with non-small cell before we got to where we are now, uh, I would say while the impact of adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy might look modest, we are dealing with a very little aggressive cancer. So a 20%, 25% reduction in the risk of death is big. Uh, at times when we just look at the median, people might look at the median and say, oh, it went from 10 months to 13 months. How much is that? What I also want to uh, emphasize to uh, our colleagues on the call is when you actually look at long-term survival, at two years, adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy triple the rate of patients who are alive at two years. So you go from 9% of patients being alive at two years to almost 23% of patients being alive. So I don't, I wouldn't look at that and say it's modest. So I think it's worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. uh, the impact would be even greater if we could find a biomarker that would tell us who are those patients benefiting. But remember when we talk about targeted therapy with non-small cell, that is where we started with elotinib. We didn't know who was going to benefit. We were giving to everyone. But in doing it and being systematic about it, we learned a lot and then see where we are now 10, 15 years later. 
So I believe that the impact of immunotherapy in small cell is worth fighting for and is worth fighting for for every patient. Absolutely. I think that sums it up very nicely. Thank you very much, Dr. Farago and Dr. Iwanakoko. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Immunotherapy in Small Cell Lung Cancer, Challenges and Opportunities of Rapidly Evolving Treatments, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.